Hebrews, verse by verse, it's part 38. I want to talk to you this morning about the two great focal points of authentic Christian faith. And the text is Hebrews 10, verses 11, 12, and 13. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Let's pray. Let our love for your word grow this year. May we enjoy it. May we enjoy studying it deeply more this year. May we enjoy meditating on it this year. And may its effect, as the Holy Spirit uses it to renew our minds, let it deepen our service to the Lord, our resistance to sin, And our delight in your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There is a mental block. 38 weeks in Hebrews. There's a mental block at work when we read these old covenant priests. Over and over again. Offering their sacrifices. There's a danger there. There's always the danger when something in the Bible is written over and over and over again. The danger is what the writer intends as emphasizing a point can easily be read by people like us as a boring lack of fresh ideas. This world of priests... And animals and Old Testament sacrifices, it's just too far removed from us to feel that real. I don't think you've ever seen anybody butcher a lamb up here at the front of the church. The whole thing feels uh, violent, kind of superstitious. I mean, we know it's God's word, and when we try and bring our brains to feel the situation that these accounts picture, we also have this huge culture gap, this huge time gap. We don't live anywhere near this stuff. Try hard today. Work with me to bring just the first sentence of our text somehow to life. Just that 11th verse. And every priest stands daily. I want to talk about that. At his service, offering repeatedly same sacrifices, no variety. And when it's all said and done, can never take away sins. Relate to that man or woman just for a minute. Bringing that animal to the priest for sacrifice. It's morning. It's early. 
maybe still dark. The sun is just starting to come up and it's cold outside. You live in a place with no central heating. You wake up and you remember the first thing you need to do is to go out and collect that perfect lamb or goat. You have to do this because if there's one thing you remember, it's the commandment that came through Moses and your own sinfulness. That's what this morning's trip is all about. You put something on your feet. You collect the sacrifice. You're on your way to the tabernacle. And you're forced. You're forced into facing your sinfulness because you know this trip is commanded by God and you know you're supposed to obey God and you know you have to bring the sacrifice in obedience because you have to make up somehow for all those other areas of your inward life where you know you don't obey God perfectly and so this sacrifice is high on the list. You take the lamb, you give it to the priest. You watch, the priest kills the lamb, he burns much of it. You wait, you can't leave. You can't go home yet until the sacrifice is finished and the priest comes back out of the holy place. And so you stand there and you wait in the outer court You wait because you know he has to come out. You know that he's not allowed to stay in the holy place any more than you could stay in the holy place because he's a sinner just like you are. He can't stay there. He visits the holy place. When it's all done, you have a sense of relief. You did what you were supposed to do. There's a certain satisfaction that you've obeyed the command of God with this daily sacrifice. Obedience is really the only thing that makes you come in the first place. It's nothing enjoyable. And you're on your way home. However far you have to go. And you realize by the time the sun starts to set in the west, that same day, The evening sacrifice has to be brought. I'm not kidding you. And off you go again. You find the lamb or the goat. You were just there in the morning. And you've got to go back tonight. The evening sacrifice has to be brought, killed, prepared, offered, Again. And so on and on it goes, morning after morning, evening after evening, sacrifice after sacrifice. And you can understand, you can't help but go to bed at night, freshly returning from the evening sacrifice with the feeling that, is this, is this ever going to be done? You have the feeling it's never over. How many trips? By the time you open your eyes again in the morning, you'll have to go out into the cold and find another lamb, another goat, just like you did yesterday morning. Off to the priest. 
Every day the same. And, and the very repetition leaves you with the feeling that while you may, you may have obeyed the command of God, nothing's changing. Nothing's different. And then on top of all this repetition, there are the nagging questions. When you lie down at night, you put your head down, and you can't stop the mental processes. What, what possible connection can there be between the death of a goat and human sin? I mean, you get it. God is just, and sin requires some kind of dealing In addition to your own conscience, you've read the scriptures, you've read the writings of Moses where, where God cautioned the very first pair of sinners in the garden. Remember, the day you disobey, you will die. Death, death. The wages of sin is death. You can process that. And your present sacrifice, morning after morning, evening after evening, it, it would make a little more sense if, if the goat had sinned and if God cared about the sins of goats. But, but you know you're taking that goat or that lamb. You know you're taking that animal for sacrifice because you sinned. And what's that have to do with a goat? What good is the death of a goat to satisfy the justice of God for human sinfulness? See, what I just described really happened. These were real people bringing these sacrifices. What's more, these were people desperately trying to please God to find some kind of forgiveness or satisfaction for their own sin because God is holy and just. They were doing what God told them to do. All of this is is the inner soul of that verse. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Don't just read those words. Like, sense sense the emotional heartbeat in them. Our, Our writer, our writer wants his readers and wants us to, to feel, to feel the perplexity in what God is setting up in that old covenant system. He's, he's, Attention is being created. A kind of divinely given frustration mixed with a little bit of shadowy expectation. What you're seeing is, behold, behold God forcing questions to the surface. Behold God setting the stage for something he's going to do. You may not have realized it, I have good news for you. Today we're beginning to wrap up the theological section of the book of Hebrews. We'll finish this section next Sunday. And then it moves more into the the practical issues. 
like, like many New Testament letters, in fact, in fact, in almost all of them, Hebrews follows this spirit-inspired pattern of laying down a doctrinal foundation first and then practical application second. What we tend to like is just give me the practical stuff. Surprisingly, the theological section, whether it's Romans or, or Galatians or Ephesians, First and Second Thessalonians, Colossians, Philippians, Hebrews, almost always the theological section is the longer of the two portions. And, and, and we shouldn't miss that. The, the intent behind this pattern is, is disciples of Christ are not just to be people who do certain things. That's the pushers of red-letter Christianity, the way they'd have you believe. Disciples are to be people who, who know why they think the way they think, who know why they believe the way they believe, and who know why they act the way they act. Don't rush past that. Don't get impatient with the Spirit's pattern for changing our minds and hearts. We're used to texts with X number of characters. We're used to Snapchat. We're, we're, we're used to quick messages and commercials, and we're used to having everything absorbed quickly with very little effort, hit the bottom line, move on to something else. And the New Testament never functions that way, and it's hard for Christian people to make the mental adjustment. True disciples are to be doers of the word, sure enough, but, but the heart of the new covenant, as we'll see in just a minute, is that we are not just bare doers. We are not cold-hearted doers. We are, to be, we are to be understanders of God, lovers of God, and then doers of his will. We obey as those who are aware, delighted, Devoted as sons and daughters, not just because God cracks a whip somewhere. Want a great verse to stick on your fridge? Psalm 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Serve him with gladness. So the theological section to the letter of the Hebrews, it comes to a close right at verse 18. We'll get there next week. But our writer has some wrap-up thoughts that he wants us paying attention to. Point number one. The repetition of so many sacrifices, devoutly offered, was a reminder no amount of religious activity can atone for human sin. This part. There's the priest. He's doing what God told him to do. The people brought the sacrifice. They're doing what God told him to do. Nothing's being missed. They're doing it over and over. And no sins are being removed. Consider this. We have in this text... A tabernacle that's designed by God himself. We have a priest called by God himself. 
who did nothing but follow the most detailed instructions for purity, washings, a special robe, all the ceremonies that he went through. And then we have people bringing the perfect lamb, the perfect animal, repeated offerings brought every morning and every night, and not one single sin was erased. Not one, not ever. Not even a small sin. So were all these people just just mistaken in their concept of sacrifice as as Brian Zond and others are so glibly teaching? Or or was, was God up to something? What are we to learn here? And here's what I think's happening. See, if I were merely told that sin could only be atoned through the death of God the Son, there's a good chance I would believe it. But God is more gracious than merely giving me some bare statement of fact. He, he wants to prove it. He wants to illustrate it. He wants to demonstrate the exclusive atoning power by Christ and Christ alone. And he does it by providing thousands of verses in the Old Testament and thousands of examples of extremely devout people using every means imaginable to atone for sin apart from Christ's shed blood. The bottom line is, not one of those sins is forgiven. Do you think, do you think that there are people on this planet today who still have a hope of somehow reaching heaven who aren't serious about Jesus Christ? That they're moral? That they, they give their blood to the Red Cross and their money to the United Way and, and, and they, they try and be good people and good parents and, and they've got their own philosophy of life and they read some good books and, and, and they're as good as anybody else that lives on their street. That's what your Old Testament's all about. People devoutly zealous trying to get to God apart from Jesus Christ. And they can't. And God doesn't give just a little bit. He gives, in fact, he gives this much. This much of your Bible. See that? He gives that much of your Bible showing what doesn't work before he says, here's what will work. And people still don't get it. The progressive nature of God's plan of redemption, it's just designed to confront any human pride that might reach for grace outside of Christ's death on the cross. This this whole revelation is structured for people who invent religions. It's for people who think that the purging effect of purgatory will somehow deal with the residue of sin remaining at death to get them ready for God's presence. It couldn't be made clearer. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices 
which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's Christ alone, and there's nothing else. You can try and get to him like all those people every morning and every night. But you can't deal with your sin. You can't make the change. For all who would look elsewhere for pardon and peace with the holy God, our writer of Hebrews, maybe you've noticed it, he's willing to risk monotonous repetition. For that soon coming day when we will all stand accountable before our creator God, there is no source for joy, no source for hope outside absolute trust in the work of Christ, God the Son, and his death for sin. All right, I've got to hurry. Point number two. Faith in Christ always involves two aspects, not just one. 12 and 13. We talk a lot, don't we, about believing in Jesus? Faith in Jesus, put your trust in Jesus. That's true. What, what, do, we, what do we mean? What aspect of Jesus? What am I trusting in? What do I need to understand? I want to say that faith in Christ always involves two aspects, not just one. And they're both in these two verses. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, I'm saying that's one, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. I'm saying that's two. When I talk about faith in Jesus, I'm not just talking about this one. I'm talking about these two. So our writer is selecting his words pretty carefully in these two verses. He's describing, get this, he's describing two results of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, not just one result. There's, There's something that's completed immediately upon Christ's death, and there's something resulting after Christ's death. Those are the two things. What happened immediately is all other searches for redemption came to an end. There is nothing to add to this. It's a single sacrifice for sin. There aren't two, there aren't three, there aren't four. And the evidence of that is revealed in Christ's sitting down. Sat down at the right hand of God. Now that obviously is meant to be contrasted. You might not notice it. That sitting down is meant to be contrasted with this. We read it before. See it here? Every priest, say it. Yeah. They all stand. You bring your sacrifice. You wait outside in the outer court because you know the priest is coming back out. You know why? He can't stay in there. That's the holy place. He's sinful too. 
Read about all the furnishings. Go through Leviticus and all those boring chapters that give you all the details of the curtains and the basins and the gold and this and that and everything else. And I'll tell you what, you'll never find in either the holy place or the holy of holies. There are no chairs and no stools. The reason is God wants to make it very clear you're just in there for a minute. You can't stay there. This sacrifice for sins... Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Just to be clear, our ascended Lord isn't seated there because his ministry has ended. That's not the case. It hasn't ended. He is seated because there are no more sacrifices to be offered. That restlessness of the old covenant priesthood, constantly on the go, shuffling feet, getting ready to prepare the next sacrifice, that restlessness is turned to a confident remaining. This great high priest of trusting, faltering people like I. This priest, unlike all those priests under the old covenant, he never ever leaves the presence of God. This is more than symbolic. There was no permanent access provided through any of those Old Testament priests. No abiding presence of God was available. The the whole Old Covenant system. Remember I said, what was God up to? The whole Old Covenant system was designed to remind all the participants, the people bringing the sacrifice and all the priests offering them, it was to remind all of them of their distance from God, not their closeness to him. Here's why that matters to you and me. Christ's death didn't just place him in the Father's presence. It opened up what Hebrews calls a new and living way. It opened up a way into Father God's presence for those Devoted to Christ in trust. And I want to show you. I want to show you the most conclusive proof of this in the whole Bible. If you have a Bible in some form. Look this one up. Don't just read it on the screen. It's in Matthew 27, 50 to 54. You have this long account of the passion. The death of Christ. I'm just reading a little slice. Pulled out from it. Matthew 27, verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, yielded up his spirit. So there's that moment Jesus dies. He really died. As dead as anyone has ever been. And and then, look what Matthew says here. He says, I want you to notice something. That's what that word, behold, means. Think about this. It's like when, when Chris reads and he says... Silah, when you're reading the Psalms, and most people don't read it out loud because you're thinking, what in the world does that mean? It's a Hebrew word, and it means, pause and think about this. That's what that word means. Behold, Jesus breathes his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. 
And, and then the earth shook. Rocks were split. You don't, you don't need the rest because I have to hurry. But what I wanted you to see is the earthquake isn't what tore the curtain. First, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. Then there's the earthquake. That torn curtain, that, that curtain that in the Old Testament tabernacle and in the temple was, was the great keep out sign of the holy place, the presence of God. That curtain was torn from top to bottom by the holiest being in the universe. And what it pictures is, through the death of Jesus, access for repentant sinners. It's wide open. Wide open. No one in the Old Testament ever dreamed of this. I said earlier, faith rests on two aspects of Christ's work. And we've been looking at the first the immediate results of the sacrifice. One sacrifice, pardon of sin, access to the presence of God. Now the second, which is still to be completed. As surely as my sins have been cleansed and forgiven, my enemies will be permanently defeated. When Christ had offered for all time the single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's what we just looked at, the immediate effect. But there's something else. There's a time thing here. Waiting for that time, read this carefully, until his enemies, I'll show you why I want you to remember that one word, his. Until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. If you saw what I said in point B, it was, as surely as my sins have been cleansed and forgiven, my enemies will be permanently defeated. That's what I said. When you look at the text, it's different. He's waiting for that time until his enemies. I did that on purpose. I want to make the point that just as surely as my sin in a very real, profound way, became his sins. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. He bore our iniquities. As surely as my sin became his, so my enemies become Christ's enemies. And I find a lot of comfort in that. There are enemies plenty in this world. And if my final victory over them all depended on my own strength, my willpower, my determination, as important as that might be, I'd be without hope, even if, even if my past sins were all forgiven. But Christ's present role and place and authority It supplies me with more than just forgiveness, as precious as that is. It stands my present life in certainty and in confidence. I just want to deal with a couple of enemies and we'll wrap up. The greatest enemy I face is the tempter, the accuser of my soul, the devil. Boy. Okay, so this service will end. Hopefully you'll stay for Christian Ed. But whenever you go... 
You're going to walk out of this place, and I'm sure that not one in a hundred of us believes as deeply as we're meant to believe. When you get out of here, and you're going across the parking lot, and you're going to your car, did you know there's a lion? There's a huge lion, claws and teeth, who waits for every one of you. Satan goes about as a... You go to university... In addition to your professor in the class, did you know that in the hallways there's a lion who wants to shred you? You're a business person. You go to work and you got to make a buck. We're not in this for charity, but did you know whenever you go and every contract you sign and everything you do, there's a lion that wants to shred you up? Christ is waiting. All these enemies. He, he, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Put them to open shame by, by triumphing over them. Then there's the enemy of death. Do you see death as your enemy? Or do you see death as Christ's enemy? Because it makes all the difference in the world. You can't beat him, death. True enough, I still have that enemy of death, stalking all mankind with apparent victory every time. But our writer of Hebrews tells me that Christ isn't panicked about this enemy. My enemy is his enemy. That's in... uh, 10.13, until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And maybe, just maybe, we start to see why our writer calls these enemies Christ's enemies. See, there's this rumor afoot with pretty good evidence to boot that this enemy, too, has already gone down in defeat through the work of Christ. One Easter morning, Long time ago, the first breezes of the day began blowing through a tomb that had been sealed shut the night before. And that risen man, the incarnate Christ, my high priest, seated at the throne of the Father who intercedes for me, he has already defeated the enemy of death. He beat him. It's not my enemy, it's his enemy. Yes, we have to wait. We have to wait for all this to be brought to completion. This is the second aspect of faith in Christ. His once for all sacrifice for my sin. And I still face enemies. As you will and yours. But you'll know that enemy when you see him. You'll know him because he's already dressed in prison garb. He's already mortally wounded with only a little bit of time left. And Christ is not worried with absolute confidence, is waiting, just waiting for the moment when that enemy too is just going to be a footrest for his death-defeating feet. I don't know how to make you happy if that doesn't excite you a little bit. Praise God. Let's close with this. 
Here's the same reference to the same time span, but it's from the Apostle Paul. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy, it's his enemy, to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, quote, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. He will put all enemies under his feet. These are the two things. You've got a thousand pages of Old Testament history proving that no kind of religious devotion can remove your sins. You need to personally acknowledge Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for your sins. And secondly, faith rests in the fact that the defeat of Christ over his enemies is just waiting for a bit more time to manifest itself to the whole world. And one day when all the graves open up and Christ judges, we will all see just how triumphant that work on the cross was. Because forgiveness of sins, you, it happens, it happens in your heart, but you can't see it. You can't see my heart, I can't see yours. Somebody prays, they ask for forgiveness, I'm confident saying they're forgiven, but I didn't see anything happen. Did you? No. Faith. And the enemies aren't all defeated yet, but they are his enemies and he's triumphed over them, and my trust is in that, the second aspect of saving faith. Root your life there, church. There's cleansing, pardon, peace of conscience, and eventual triumph over all enemies. Let's pray.